okay, I've got to sort of behave, but I'm, you know, not stuck to one place with a microphone in front of my mouth, which feels amazing. A bit of liberation to be here. And uh, yeah, it's great to be together. So we continue in uh, the study of the book of James. And this morning, I want to take us to look at a tapestry of hope. Um, James has taken us through the apex of the book, which was a part in chapter 4, where he urges us to step into what the prophets called for, but what is made possible through Jesus. And, and, and that is a lifestyle of repentance and of meaningful change. And then he's been taking us through a few other things, but we get to James chapter 5 and verse 7. And I think this, the concepts that, that our, our reading takes us to is so spot on for where we are right now. I don't know about you, but kind of the thought of a fourth wave and the fatigue of more COVID precautions and watching the exponential increase of Omicron sweeping across the provinces of our country and the sort of like, yeah, the ping pong that that's causing all over the world in terms of travel regulations and more. And the chaos that that's caused even for people here this morning. Andrea wouldn't be leading worship this morning if it weren't for this jolly nonsense. Um, and we'd rather you weren't here, actually, but Andrea wanted to be with family, but we're glad that you are here. But with all this stuff going on, and with so much more, personal stuff, personal challenges, we might be tempted to throw in the towel, to feel depressed, to get discouraged, or even angry, short-tempered, and downright grumpy, often with the people who are closest to us. Why? Simply because they are in ear reach and arms reach. And so let's go to James chapter 5 and verse 7. And he comes to, remember, nothing James says hasn't come from Jesus. He, he's taking the Sermon on the Mount. He's a follower of Jesus. And he's showing us how in Jesus the ideas of the Old Testament are actually finding their full expression. So be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Now the Old Testament is interesting because... They believed the Lord's coming was future. New Testament, they believed the Lord had come. Joy to the world. We're going to be doing this at Christmas. The Lord is come. And he introduces this letter with it. James, I'm a servant of God and of Jesus Messiah. He believes in Jesus God has come. And yet he believes God is still going to come. And so there's this shift from the Old Testament way of seeing things that you've got this present age and then God's going to come and then everything's going to be fine. And actually, no, God has come, brought salvation into the world and God's people are now responsible to carry into the world the change that Jesus has made possible. And yet still there will be a decisive day in which he can say the Lord will come. And the technical word is parousia which is talking about that final great day. And then he says this, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the early and the latter rains, or the autumn and spring rains is what the NIV explains. So you too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. And don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. In other words, the coming is close. Brothers and sisters, 
as an example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Now, do we? (laughs) But from an apostolic perspective, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You don't persevere, you lose your blessing. We count as blessed those who persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And so above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Okay, now it seems like these are sort of like random thoughts, you know, a little bit there, a little bit there. Um, I want to show you how they fit together. And uh, actually, they fit together really well in a beautiful tapestry. And so I'm going to use uh, this picture of a tapestry uh, of hope. And, and there's a crossweave in this tapestry as you look at the passage, which is how we treat and talk to one another. There's a vertical weave which is about our certainty of God's having come, coming, and of his character. And then there's the thread that God actually uses, which is your character and mine. Sort of like who we are becoming as people. And out of this, God is going to make a tapestry. So we take them in reverse order. First of all, the thread that God is using to make this tapestry of hope And it's being woven together. The quality of the tapestry is going to be determined by the quality of your character and mine. Several commands emerge from the passage to show us this. Firstly, James calls us to deeply ingrain and imbibe and habitually do this thing called patience or waiting and perseverance or even in the old school language, long-suffering. And uh, as he brings his letter to a close, he's returning to his opening concert. So this is the beginning of the conclusion. And when you look at the beginning of the beginning, in other words, his introduction, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And he's coming back to that same idea. Guys, God is coming. God has come. Jesus is Messiah. And God is coming, and we've got this middle bit in between in which we've got to persevere. Now, the prayer meeting this morning, we looked at Colossians chapter 1, in which Paul prays for great endurance and great patience. I don't know if you want someone to pray that for you. Because what does it imply? That it's a long haul, guys. It's, It's a tough Tough cookie. You know, if someone prays for great endurance and you're about to run an ultra marathon, you know that you've got a long haul about, you know, ahead of you. And so he wants this perseverance to finish its work in us. We've got to develop this stickability. And it requires this patience of a particular kind. And this patience is not passive. This patience in the kingdom is strategic is resolute, and it's resilient. Patience and endurance, it's, it's like how, it's one of God's strategies. It's how he gets to see the kingdom come through you and me. In other words, we receive a word, and a little bit like Joseph and his dreams. 
You know, Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis has these amazing promises from God that come to him as a dream. And we could have these dreams and hopes and ambitions and longing. And guess what happens to him? He gets sold as a slave, thrown in a pit, chucked in jail as a rapist, and forgotten by the people he helps. He helps. And you could just chuck it in. But Joseph is living ready because he does not give up his hope. His character actually deepens in the time of testing. And that's this kind of thinking that's in this place here. And, and so there's this critical strength that actually comes to us in the test and through the test and in no other way. You'd never know that you've got what it takes until you've actually gone the distance. And so James gives us three illustrations. First of all, a farmer who sows for a harvest. And when this farmer does so, he knows you've got to sow, and then you've got to wait, and then you get your harvest. Now, the interesting thing is, is this idea of sowing and not giving up. And if you look at the end of Galatians, the Apostle Paul has the same idea. We are tempted to give up when we sow and we don't see immediate results. And he's going, no, the farmer knows you've got to sow, and then you've got to give this thing time to like produce its full fruit. But the interesting, he also adds something here. He says, and there are factors beyond your control, the rain. Like there's the early rain that helps soften the soil so that you can get the seed into the ground. And he's reflecting, by the way, Palestinian climatology and farming practice. And so they would wait for the early rains um, and be ready. And sometimes they'd have to start sowing before the rains come. But those early rains gave the, uh, so like a kickstart. And, you know, we're looking at baptism today. And in a sense, it's triggering that early start. And yet he says, there's also the later rains that are going to come. And they are going to give this harvest, it's like pop. And, and so he says, as a farmer, there are some things that you know are outside of your control. But you know what? You can bank on those things. So you do what you can and you trust what you can't. And in a sense, he, uses, he offers us this picture. Will we do what we can and then trust for what we can't? And he talks about the prophets, secondly, who were deeply opposed and unpopular because they spoke God's word. And there's a, it's a real irony in this book because the tongue up to now has often been associated with trouble. You know, this causes chaos. It's a, it's, it's a troublesome thing. But suddenly these guys are in trouble because they've spoken truth. And so he has this tension of these prophets who had to endure so much. And if you had to think of Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Elijah depressed on a hillside and in a desert and so many different ones of them, literally wanting to give up and chuck it in. And somehow they found the ability to persevere. And then he gives us, of course, Job, the sort of like master lesson in patience in the Old Testament. And Job receives blessings because he doesn't give up. His faith is tested, but it proves resilient. Now, Tom Wright, a theologian, tells us something critical to remember about Job, and it's this, that although the story of Job starts with a conversation between God and the devil, 
You know, in chapter 1, and the devil comes and he wants to slander Job and accuse Job. His name is Satan, which means the accuser. And God kind of says, look at Job. Although it starts with a conversation between the two of them. The book is never about a contest between God and Satan. Like, that's just no contest. There is no contest. And technically, there's no dualism. Like, as if the devil was somehow equal to or a, you know, a, a kind of opposite but similar force to God. Like, there's no contest. That's not what the book is about at all. Tom Wright says that the contest between good and evil on earth is always a contest between humans and the devil. And so the contest as it plays out is between Job and his accuser. Not between God and the devil. God's not going to lose or win. It's a contest for God's will on earth through Job. Job's friends thought that Job was competing with God. Job thought that God was competing with evil and suffering. But actually the book shows us that Job was competing with the enemy and his accusations. And because Job did not give up his hope, God vindicates him. You see, our path to victory over our enemy, the devil, is to patiently keep our eyes on God and not lose hope. And it's interesting that Israel did what Job didn't. Job chapter 1 and verse 22. Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now when you look at Israel's history, especially in the intertestamental period, in other words, between Old and New Testament, there's a 400-year period there. Israel developed a theology that like, God's getting this wrong. Which takes us to the second thread in our tapestry First was our character. The second is the vertical weave. And that is, according to James, the, the certainty of God's character and of his coming. And he's going to point us to God's character. So in those 400 years, the Jews had returned to their homeland, but they never fully regained their sovereignty and dominion. And a crisis developed in which they believed that after their exile, and you read the intertestamental writings, and they're not inspired, precisely because people are thinking, there's a problem with God. <laughs> and, and their logic was this, that we have come back and we've got rid of our idols and we don't serve foreign kings and we are being faithful to God's word and we are still not being given victory over our enemies and we are not being given freedom in our own land. And so we're not able to get rid of the Greeks or we're not able to get rid of the Romans and so there's this long crisis of faith that Israel starts to talk about. In their understanding, they should have returned to the glory days of David and Solomon when all the nations come to them and look at them and go, wow, look at you guys, like the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon, like blown away. And the crisis was that this didn't happen. So then they changed their theology to fit their situation. Never a good idea. <laughs> Never a good idea. They essentially decided that they had to resign themselves to evil as God's plan for them. Believing in the words of New Testament scholar George Ladd, that pretty much there's nothing you can do about it except make sure that you escape on judgment day. 
So the, word, the world essentially is going to hell in a handbasket, and you need to make sure you've got to get out of jail free card. And there's a lot of end-time theology that pretty much sounds like that, <laughs> even in our day. And somehow God wants evil and bad stuff, and he's going to bring you know, some kind of rescue all at the end. James does not believe that. You know, when I was a kid, we in our hometown, Kimberley, used to have an annual like trade fair. And on the Saturday night, there was a fireworks display. But just before the fireworks display, they used to have, they used to crash. I mean, I, I can't remember what we used to call it. It wasn't like bumper cars because they totally just, you know, they bring in some old cars where they had the engines just barely running and they'd put them on a ramp and they'd race around. And then after the race, they'd, they'd just crash them all into a giant pile and they'd put a ramp up and the ramp would go higher and higher and these guys would come speeding and they'd land these things. Now, you could see that those old cars, had, they had a lick of paint to give them an appearance, but nobody was going to fix those things because they knew they were going to pretty much wreck them by the end of the night, and that was part of the entertainment. Um, now, most of Israel had given up on creation. They had stopped believing that God is actually going to save this world and save the people of this world. And so if you're going to smash everything at the end of history, well, what's the point? You just hope that you've got a seatbelt to get through the accident so that you can come out the other side. It was an escape mindset. Now, the problem is, is if you're just waiting for the smash of judgment day, you stop sowing like the farmer. You stop persevering in actually doing good in all the things that James has been trying to teach throughout the whole letter. Why? Because you're going to hell in a handbasket. You just need to get out of jail free card and then you're all okay. And so they stopped expecting goodness. They stopped looking for the actions of God in their everyday life. And Jewish theology of the day concluded that God was essentially and permanently in a really bad mood. And that the end of the world would hopefully let him get it out of his system, and then we could all move on. Now, three times in these verses, he makes it very clear that God's coming gives them, God's coming in the future gives them faith for the present. Now, if it's just going to be a huge train smash, well, you don't really need faith. You just need faith for the future. But he says his coming then is giving you faith for now to keep sowing now. Clearly he believed that the Messiah had come in the Lord Jesus. And that Jesus has revealed the extraordinary goodness of the character of God. And so he expects in the midst of this God's early reigns and God's late reigns. Now what does that mean in the present age that we live in? There's this release, but there's this ongoing expectation of the work of God. Now, I don't want to, God can work at any stage. I don't, I don't have the latter rain theology, but I'm, I'm just drawing this out that he has an expectation that you're going to see God. It's not that God started the world and then there's just this decline into rubbish until Jesus comes and rescues us all and drags us to cloud nine somewhere. You get the point. He says in verse 11b, God is good. God is 
full of compassion and mercy. In other words, God's not in a bad mood. God is love. And so James, again and again, throughout the book, links our ability to persevere and dig deep in these tough times because of what his older brother Jesus showed him about the character of Father God, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. You read the Sermon on the Mount, you see this Father who loves, who forgives, who gives us what we need. And so if you do a quick scan of the character and nature of God, remember this is the vertical weave. You see in the book of James, God is a God who gives generously to all, who does not tempt, who is not tempted to do evil or by evil, who does not change, who pours out every good and perfect gift, looks after the vulnerable, who does not show favoritism, who makes us rich in faith, who promises an inheritance in the kingdom, who shows favor to the humble, comes near to the contrite, who hears the cries of the oppressed and the exploited, and is coming to judge evil and get rid of it from his earth. That's the good God who is full of mercy and compassion. When you don't understand this generous, good God, you're going to start coming up with bad theology. We saw it in James 1. God's character is like the sun that never sets. It's always midday. There's not even a a hint of the shadow shifting in God. He's good. He's good. He's good. And so James says, you hold on to this God and don't give up. Jesus says in Matthew 24, I don't know why my sermon notes just disappeared. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 13, essentially, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And so we have the first weave is our, the character God is developing in us. And the second, this cross vertical, uh, sorry, the thread is, is our character. The second is the vertical, which is the nature of God coming down. And there's the certainty that God has come and that God will come. And then in James's expectation, we're going to see this next week. Now, when God's people gather, When God's people pray, when God's people speak forgiveness over one another, God comes again. And so there's healing, and there's deliverance, and there's forgiveness, and there's salvation. And God who came and the God who will come is the God who's coming right now. Sorry, I don't know why my notes jumped away on me. Let me just quickly find it. So let's go to the third point, the cross weave. Hope and patience and the ability to go the distance is is strengthened by how we treat and speak to one another. There's the thread, which is our character. There's the vertical weave, which is God's character. And then there's how we relate to one another. Now, James warns us against grumbling against one another, judging one another, and deceiving one another. Ouch. But when times are hard and things are tough, it's so easy to complain, isn't it? It's so easy to grumble or to criticize and judge or to swear, exaggerate, and deceive people around us. And he says, don't do this to one another. In other words, it's especially easy to behave like this to the people you love. Like when times are hard, who do you pick on? 
<laughs> when things are going wrong. I mean, sometimes we might yell at a stranger in the traffic, but most times we're actually nasty towards the people who love us the most. He just understands the human behavior. The Bible gives a classic example of this, and Andrew is preaching on Mary and Martha in the classic congregation. I'm not sure he picked up on this point, but there's Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, which is a technical term for behaving like a disciple of Jesus, not just that she was sitting at his feet. And Martha is preparing to feed all these people in her home, another kingdom activity of hospitality. But Martha feels stressed and upset with Mary for not helping her. And so just as in any normal dysfunctional family, Mary shouts at Jesus because she's cross with, I mean, Martha shouts at Jesus because she's cross with Mary. You know, that's how it works. Verse 40 of, of Luke 10, Martha's distracted by all the preparations. She comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Now, in the Greek, that could just be a statement. It doesn't have to be a question. They politely made it a question. But, you know, she could say, I'm just asking. Don't you care? Not saying, I'm just asking. Well, I am just saying. And then the next line is the real sort of like control and demand function. <laughs> Hit the red button. Tell her to help me. And why is she picking on Jesus? Because he's actually, in one sense, the one she trusts the most. And we act out towards those we love and trust when we're in pain or disappointed or frustrated. Or does nobody else do that? You see, it's so easy to grumble and complain and find fault with the people closest to us when things are stressful. And then seemingly out of nowhere, James says this, Above all, brothers and sisters, don't swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is your simple yes and no. Otherwise, you get judged or condemned. Now, he's quoting Jesus in Matthew 5. But essentially, James is concerned, not just that we don't grumble or criticize, but that we don't deceive one another. You see, the problem with oaths was not that people were going to court and raising their hand and saying, I promise I'll tell you the truth. That's not an issue. And it happens here. God makes oaths. The apostle Paul makes oaths. Jesus even tells people, I tell you the truth. No, no, no. In the Jewish system of oaths, it, instead of establishing the truth, it had become an elaborate system to tell a lie. And so when, depending on how you formulated your oath, you were allowed to lie. So it became a form of insider trading. If you knew the code, then you could get away with telling a lie. And, and this was a Pharisaic practice. You know, the righteous Pharisees would appeal to things, and it depended on whether you appealed directly to God or to something indirectly related to God. And if you appealed directly to God, the oath counted, but if it was only indirectly related, then the oath didn't count. So Jesus says, hey guys, come on. You say, if you swear by the gold in the temple, you can do whatever you like. It doesn't count. But if you swear by the temple, that's related to God. Well, then, uh, then you're bound by the oath. That's just rubbish. Just a yes or a no. It creates this insider system that if you know the rules, you can know how to cheat someone, quite frankly. So let's say Levi, a Jew, is selling land to a polis, a Gentile believer. 
Now, Levi knows that the land is not good, but he swears to Apollos the land is great. And Apollos, who doesn't know how the oaths work, is deceived even though he swears, for example, by the gold in the temple. Because he didn't swear by the temple. And so that which is meant to establish truth is actually become a way of deceiving others. And he says, just stop it. <laughs> there were some things in Jewish religious life that the early church following Jesus said, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> and this seems to be one of the practices that was still creeping in to the way the church was treating one another. And invariably it becomes the vulnerable, the foreigner, and in this church, the Gentiles and the woman who suffered as a result of not knowing the oath codes. And so he just says, stop it. No, no. So we're not going to grumble. <laughs> we're not going to criticize. And we're not going to deceive one another. We're going to create an environment where we're honest but hopeful. Where we speak life to one another. And we tell the truth, even if it costs us. That's the picture of the kingdom that he paints. I think it's an amazing tapestry. Can someone call the young people? I meant to do this earlier. We need to call Mikey. Can you tell them to come? They're going to come and take over. Um, Bevan, we can start moving the baptistry stuff. Andrea, we can are we moving this a little bit? Okay, let's start moving those things. Um, I'm just going to let them come and wrap up. I mean, move these things while we pray. Father, we, we, we thank you for this vision of the kingdom. We thank you for its practicalness, and we thank you that even today when we are discouraged or tempted to give up, when it's tough and hard to keep going, that you offer us a picture of yourself as the God who is good, the God who is merciful, the God who is compassionate, the God who is generous, and the God who does not change. And you invite us into this space. So church, I just, I just bless you today to be reminded again. And this is a picture that came to me, as it were, of, of the early and the late rains. We're going to see a baptism now. We're reminded of the grace that pours out in the early stages of life. And hopefully as you watch these guys getting baptized, something reminds you of God's love for you that initiation in, and, and that receiving of his spirit, and that recognition, yes, I believe. But the expectation that there's more to come. Yes, based on that very beginning, based on that very beginning, God wants to make the harvest of your life blossom, bloom, and pop. And so just bless you to know as you're watching this today that the God who helped you begin is the God who is faithful to help you finish well. Amen. Amen.